Smart Podcast, Episode 7. You're listening to a scene from Warriors of the Apocalypse, a 1985 movie, and in this scene, two wizards are about to face off in an eye laser shooting contest. See, if you type eye lasers into YouTube, one of the 205,000 results that you will get will be uh, this 10 hour long supercut of that amazing scene from the 1985 movie. Uh, where post-apocalyptic wizards can shoot lasers out of their eyes. And you know, it's just one of a lot of things you'll find if you type in heat vision or laser vision or uh, power blasts from your eyes. Here's, a, here's one. This is uh, the uh, eye blasts of Cyclops. And here's Superman from Smallville, the TV show. And uh, as Superman is growing up and he's starting to have those strange feelings that you get during puberty, uh, well, this happens. Uh, uh, Clark, what's wrong? I'm not feeling so well. Oh my God, you're burning up. Let me drive you home. That's Clark Kent's heat vision, you see. It comes out of his eyes whenever he is feeling tingly because of feelings that he doesn't really know how to control. So he doesn't know how to control his heat vision, either. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. What happened? Of course, by the time Superman grows up, he figures out how to use his heat vision. And uh, in this scene from the Superman cartoon, he uses it to lay waste to an entire army of monster soldiers. This ends now. So you can see that this is just a sample of the 205,000 videos out there. And you can type in heat vision or you can type in laser vision and you will find all sorts of scenes from movies and cartoons like this. Or you will find uh, an impressive number of tutorials teaching people how to use After Effects and other programs to make heat vision effects. And um, one of the most... Uh, anticipated and the most uh, talked about parts of the new Superman movie, Man of Steel, was how they were going to update the heat vision, how they were going to make those eye blasts uh, really cool and different in a more quote-unquote realistic Superman movie. So this idea of beams coming out of your eyes is sort of deeply ingrained in our mythology and it comes out whenever we have a chance to be really fantastical. So why is that? Why are we so fascinated with the idea of eye beams coming out of, uh, out of the eyes of the fantastic, out of the mythical? Well, I can't say for sure, but I have a hunch that it has to do with common sense. You see, when psychologists interview children and ask them to explain how eyes work, about half will naturally, without prompting, say it has to do with something coming out of the eyes, or, as scientists put it, extra mission. But stranger still, when adult college students are asked the same question today, a full third also say that vision is accomplished through shooting beams of energy out of your eye holes. So it seems to suggest that vision, like many other things, is something that common sense can't explain. And if you never learn what science has to say about the matter, well, Superman and Cyclops don't seem all that implausible, at least not according to common sense. And that's what we're going to talk about today on the You Are Not So Smart podcast. My name is David McCraney. I will be your host. And on each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, we talk about a different subject in the realm of self-delusion. Sometimes it's logical fallacies, sometimes it's heuristics, and sometimes it's cognitive biases. But today we're going to talk about just the general idea of 
common sense. And I'm going to couch that in the a discussion of superseded scientific theories. And a superseded scientific theory is something that scholars and academics and learned people going all the way back to antiquity may have believed about how the natural world works. And then it turns out that this thing is not true at all after science diligently falsifies that thing. So it may be that uh, believing that the Earth is at the center of the solar system, or it may be believing that uh, bloodletting is a good solution to, uh, you know, bad, bad fevers, that sort of thing. But also, if you take the, if you look at the research of the psychologist Jean Piaget, he would interview children and ask them questions about how the natural world works through their observations. Things like uh, if you put the same amount of water in one glass versus another, but one glass looks bigger, like it's taller, like it's a flute. Um, children will often say that there's now more water in that glass than when it was in the other glass. So it's, you know, it's silly, it's ridiculous as an adult to see it. And then what's, that's what's interesting is that he would he would research these children and he would ask the same question of children at uh, ever increasing ages and then he would notice when that seems to fade out when a when a child starts to understand that they have a mind and that other people have a mind or when when children start to get object permanence or when they would start to understand that okay that's a differently shaped glass but it's the same amount of water but another thing that he noticed was that certain things that children believe correspond very well to things that people used to believe in ancient times before science explained how the world works. Things like thinking that the world is flat or thinking that if one object is heavier than another and you drop them at the same time that it will land before the other object. And if you ask adults, be they in a society that has never been exposed to this sort of stuff or be it in a person who hasn't been um, educated or someone who just has forgotten what they've learned in science class, many adults will give you the same answers to those things. It seems to suggest to me that our common sense explanations about how the world works are generally, well, terrible. And that common sense is not something we should rely on, no matter how many times you hear things like common sense answers to difficult questions, or you know, I'm just going to use common sense, or that's just common sense. And this extra mission theory of vision is the, it really, really says that to me, because I've got this paper in front of me, and it's a collection of studies done by Gerald Weiner and Janie Cottrell, and, this, and the paper is, does anything leave the eye when we see extra mission beliefs of children and adults? And what they did is they interviewed lots of children at different ages and also adults and asked them variations of questions about how vision works. And the reason they wanted to use that is that um, the extra mission theory of vision is something that was, I have the paper in front of me right here, something that people believed uh, all the way up until the 1600s, even though there was some skepticism started to arise about the idea in the 1200s, but it really didn't go away until the 1600s. So basically throughout all of human history up until 1600-ish on, People believe that vision was either something that was accomplished by beams coming out of the eyeballs or a mixture of beams going out of the eyeballs and coming back in, even though we now know today that, uh, no, it's light reflecting off of objects going into our eyes, hitting our retina, being transferred uh, into um, chemical electrical signals that go into the brain and then are further processed. But as they say in this paper, going back to Plato, Euclid, and Ptolemy, people believed in what has been termed the extra mission theory of visual perception and it stressed that there were emanations from the eyes during the act of seeing. And so I'm going to go right here to the center of the paper. <laughs> so this is great. They, this, is, this is insane. On the simple question asking where anything comes out of the eyes, we found that 49% of first graders, 70% of third graders, 50, and 51% of fifth graders said yes, vision was eye beams coming out of the eyes. But here's the crazy one. And... 33% of college students affirmed extra mission. Wow. So about a third of college students, despite going through elementary school and high school and probably seeing pictures of how the eye works, there's still that, that thing that, that we have, that natural uh, belief that vision must have something to do with uh, something coming out of the eyes. I mean, sometimes I feel like someone is staring at me. When someone is staring at me, I see it. Their piercing gaze, I can feel it on my skin. So it makes sense, you know, it makes sense that, that our common sense explanation for how our senses work is, uh, is wrong. It makes sense. And that's been true for a whole lot of things. 
please go to www.youarenotsosmart.com and check out the trailer for my new book, You Are Now Less Dumb. We worked really hard on this thing, and this is the subject matter for the whole trailer. We go into a discussion of goose trees, and it's true. For a very long time, people believed that geese grew on trees just because of a barnacle that kind of looks like a goose that uh, grew and um, was observed in areas where those geese tended to show up during uh, other parts of the year. You'll see the whole thing. It's a really cool trailer. Just go to youarenotsosmart.com and check it out, or go to YouTube and type in You Are Now Less Dumb into the search bar, and you'll go right to it. So we're going to talk about common sense today with our guest. His name is Kevin Lyon, and he is a friend of mine who teaches biology and teaches uh, anatomy and physiology and uh, teaches zoology at a local community college. And he is one of the smartest people I have ever known. And I like that he is also a very much a Southerner. He has a, a deep Southern drawl, and um, he is a person who lives and breathes Southern culture, but he is also incredibly super super intelligent and and there's just nothing i like better in the world than the the honesty and the um worldwide playfulness of a uh, educated intelligent southerner now and you're gonna love this you're just gonna love this interview it's so good please do forgive the quality of the interview though there was an air conditioner in the room and it made a weird humming sound and in the, about halfway through the interview you'll hear it switch to my backup because I ran out of space on my primary recording device. Anyway, enjoy. Earlier we were talking about um, um, how people used to believe some very strange things, and one of those strange things that persisted in uh, amongst learned people, amongst scholars, amongst the educated, uh, whenever you ask somebody how the world worked, they would uh, bring up something called spontaneous generation to explain life and life forms. And what I would like to know is, considering your expertise in the subject, is how can a something that's completely wrong like that, that we now understand to be absolutely ridiculous, how can people believe that that was... If you were really, really smart, this is how you understood the world worked. Mm -hmm. That idea had been accepted for a long time, and antiquity has a way of making things, you know, somewhat attractive. And it was made worse by the fact that university systems all over the world kind of patterned themselves after the German university system. They were seen as being the greatest, even here in the States. And that went on until the 20th century. If you look at Nobel Prizes from mm, the early 1900s through about you know, 1930 or 40, the number of Nobel Prizes won by German scientists pretty much equals that of American scientists. And our output combined dwarfs the rest of the world. So there was something to respect in them. But they had this great man model. Each science had his own great man. There was the guy on physics, the guy on you know, uh, evolution, the guy on anything. And you only got yourself advanced if you accepted the great man's work and added to it. It was very difficult to come in as, as a, a detractor from the great man's model for how your science worked. You would fight an uphill battle your whole career. So there was an element of conformism in academia. And of course, academia at that time was the main funding source for science. Um, the private sector hadn't yet created a great deal of, of research funding, and, and independent government agencies as funders of research, that sort of thing, wasn't happening yet. And that changed in the 20th century. And so science became much more critical of what its own product had created. So it, it became possible for a fellow to disagree with what was accepted by the great man at the time, especially when the great man disappeared. You began to have a lot more parity between different nations' university systems and a lot more competition, and it got a lot more cutthroat. And this is something the public doesn't really realize today. Um, I get a kick out of the sport that's made of evolution or climate science or some of those things. Um, when they assume that all scientists are in lockstep, that they all agree with each other, and that's how you make your name in the world. Because in contrast to 120, 30 years ago, the way to make your name now is not to agree with the conventional and to have something to back it up with. So if you can show one of the big ideas of your science to be flawed in some way, 
um, you can make a name for yourself overnight. Mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. it's partly because of the way you can get your, oh, thanks, honey. It wasn't a can left. I didn't see it. It was in the door. That's so, okay. So uh, overnight, thanks to the internet, you know, everyone <laughs> will know your name. So it's a lot easier to buck the conventional scientific ideas now. But like I said, you've got to have something to back it up with. And a lot of scientists in the past were not that scientific. Largely the thing that made them scientists was what they were studying more than how they were studying it. Mm. There was a lot less uh, a lot less emphasis put on experimental design and uh, peer-reviewed publication and that sort of thing. So uh, that, that has changed. So what is, um, for someone who's never heard it before, what is spontaneous generation? What is the idea? The idea is that non-living material can and does regularly produce living things, organisms. Uh, some of the ideas that you'd mentioned earlier, like the barnacle geese and the uh, mice from uh, <laughs> living dark uh, spaces right. full of corn and rags. One, one of my favorites is the that if rotting logs are heated enough, they will produce salamanders, which the salamanders <laughs> are already in the log. You know, you're on the campfire and you're throwing it in there. And the poor salamander's just trying to save his ass by squiggling out of the fire. They actually thought that the fire made the salamanders. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, spontaneous generation had been let go of on that level by a lot of people by the early 1800s. But there were still some guys around who thought that single-celled organisms like bacteria did regularly, spontaneously generate from uh, non-living material. After all, if you leave some broth sitting in a loosely sealed jar, for a few days, that chicken broth is going to be full of bacteria. Even though you boiled it and sterilized it on Monday, by Thursday it stinks to high heaven. Uh, Pasteur had to go to great pains to make a curved-necked flask with a long, long, narrow neck, and at the end it was open. Uh, initially, he had sealed that neck, and spontaneous generation has said, "Ah, didn't we tell you? Air has to circulate through there." So Pasteur stretched the neck and lengthened it, and that allowed air to go in and out, but bacteria would get caught on the neck. So by Pasteur's time, even the individuals who had held on to it the, the, the best had to give up on it, but there are probably still some around, just like there's a Flat Earth Society. <laughs> right. But it's become a fringe belief, and, and it's been used by some anti-evolution types to attack the idea of spontaneous generation of life on Earth or elsewhere, but given an infinite amount of time and given the right conditions, it's not only likely, it's almost inevitable that you get uh, at least DNA and RNA, and when that DNA begins to be able to replicate or something that begins with the RNA replicating itself, then you might get something akin to spontaneous generation, but it would be after eons of time, so not something that would automatically happen if you just had the right conditions for a few minutes. Right. Yeah. So um, why was that idea not challenged um, for a thousand years? What, what took so long for someone to go, what, why was, what created the scientific toolkit that allowed us to say, well, maybe this isn't true? It, we owe a lot more to logic than people think. Um, the problem of the great man stretches a long way back. If an authority had said something, you could pretty well ruin yourself by disagreeing with him. Uh, one of my favorite examples of that is the first century Roman surgeon to the gladiators named Galen, who had access to a lot of Greek texts, and so he knew things that were, uh, well, that the ancient Greeks had known, and he also learned some rough and ready anatomy from seeing people cut up in the gladiatorial games. But he published a number of things that just aren't so, like the idea that blood makes its way from the left ventricle to the right ventricle and back again through little pores in the septum of the heart. It doesn't. And it would only have taken one person carefully dissecting some hearts to see that it doesn't. Why couldn't they do that? Because Galen had said it does. And to disagree with Galen was to look like an ass. There were a lot of people in medieval Europe who thought that the ancient Greeks some of them, the Romans too, had been handed all that knowledge that they had by Lord God Jehovah, that it was some sort of um, divine 
instruction that they had received from God. And I've always marveled at that because why would the Jehovah God of the Jews share information with that polytheistic bunch of Mediterraneans? <laughs> why would he give them that information? But to say something against Galen or Hippocrates was basically like heresy. You were, uh, it was like saying something from the Bible wasn't true. They actually looked at it that way. And if you think about it much, you'll realize why. Truth was less important to those guys than keeping their authority. And if you could say that the things you taught had come from God, then you were unassailable. You didn't have to worry about a guy cutting up some hearts and showing you were wrong. Yeah, you were protected. You know, you mentioned, um, I know I've, I've, I've written about uh, things called phlogiston, the uh, the backwards way of understand like fire is in things, we have mm-hmm. to release it. Right. And uh, <laughs> when you cover up, uh, if you have something on fire and you put it into like a pot and you put the lid on it, mm-hmm. then um, the phlogiston saturates the the object and so it can no longer burn instead of instead of just oxygen being the right. the, the key. Explanation. And you were saying the salamanders come out mm-hmm. of the thing and um, people used to believe uh, that that meat would actually make flies. Like made they, the maggot and the maggot turned into the fly. And why they didn't connect that with the adult flies that were flying around who like to land on the meat as it's swollen, I just don't get it. And it's it's a very backwards way of seeing things where uh, you know you're you're really proceeding from I, I observe this and then I come up with this plausible story mm-hmm. and nothing that I've seen will really discredit my story and they didn't try to disconfirm right. their assumptions right. and it seems to me that a lot of what's in modern science is an, an initial attempt to like you were saying uh, if, uh, earlier why don't we just go ahead and try to disconfirm this right off the bat like like, like let's start from there exactly what when did that become part of what we call science? And, and, and why is that, why would you not run the, like... Um, yeah, when I cut up some hearts to confirm that what Galen said is right. right. Um, I think that's gaining force as you get to the 19th century. Um, people were finding out a lot of old ideas weren't so. The ancient Greeks had thought that arteries were full of air. In fact, the very word artery means, you know, airway. And that's because the last pumping of the heart upon death often ejects the blood through the arteries and then none is returned to the heart. So it kind of empties them. And seeing them empty, they thought, they'd also thought, excuse me, that our nerves were full of air. And so uh, people doing, you know, cross sections of the axons of of neurons and, and seeing nerves through the microscope and a lot more observations were showing that, hey, maybe this stuff isn't all that. So the idea that, uh, that it was divinely inspired and uh, unquestionable. Um, that, that pretty well had died at the beginning of the 19th century. But there was still the fact that scientists are humans. And even scientists tend to make the sort of deductions and inductions that humans are prone to making. Um, something that I thought about the other day when I was watching your trailer was we come up with this cherished belief and we're trying to preserve it, even if we have to make some excuses all around the edges of it to keep it there. And uh, it, it's a great example of inductive reasoning. You start from the conclusion and uh, then you apply it to all these situations. So the conclusion is there in your mind and if you discover something that fits it, it tends to confirm it. But that's really not the way it works. If you start with the conclusion there might also be several other conclusions that you could start with, and certain data may fit multiple, you know, conclusions that you've begun with. So, uh, your premises can be flawed and still be consistent with the data that you're getting. And so, even a clock, a stopped clock, is right twice a day, mm-hmm. uh, that sort of thing. But there's more and more dependence as you get through the 19th century on deductive logic and reference to observation. And, and experiment. And by the 20th century, science is, is really taken off, much more powerful than it had been 100 years before. And this is what I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, cause, uh, but it just seems to me like it's like we invented a new way of thinking, right? So we invented a, a sort of almost like a pilot has a checklist. So the pilot can't trust himself or herself to do everything right every time, no matter how many times they've done it. And so they, they have slowly created this beautiful checklist, and, and that's, they trust that checklist to keep them in, in line. And then to 
think properly about the world, to think properly about observation or whatever, uh, what you observe and, and, and to checks and balances, they had we had to invent this thing called science and the scientific method. And without it, our natural way of looking at the world is uh, to say... It's very flawed. Hey, uh, I think that geese... I can't tell where these geese go. These geese aren't here during this, pro- this time of the year, which is odd to me. But these barnacles are here at this time of the year, and where these geese congregate. Oh, look, there's a whole lot of geese here. And well, well just natural, obviously... They're obviously, connected. They have to be connected. Yes. And all it takes is someone of prominence to put it into a book, uh-huh. and that can la- it lasted for oh, 700 yes. years. Oh, yes. Um, and that, that sort of thing did persist. The putting in a book, giving legs to an idea, uh, persists even today. Now, I was recently reading of a... Uh, series of dissections made by a 19th century English physician which found their way into anatomy books. They were very hard to replicate these dissections because they were of lactating women. He'd asked the body snatchers that he uh, employed to bring him women who were nursing babies when they died. It was time of life when women seldom die. And somehow during his dissections he saw leading from the uh, glob-like glands that actually make the milk into the duct he saw a chamber just before the nipple and called it a lactiferous sinus. Nice, elegant name. Those textbooks sitting up there all contain drawings of breasts that have the gland, the duct, the lactiferous sinus, and then the hole in the nipple through which the milk comes out. Recent study of dozens of Australian women who were nursing used ultrasound rather than dissection. Ultrasound showed no lactiferous sinuses underneath the nipples of any of these dozens of Australian women. We begin to wonder if they actually exist. So one guy did these dissections, put it in his textbook, and I, I guarantee you, you'd be hard-pressed to find an anatomy text today that doesn't show. Today? Today. And this study was done maybe four or five years ago, I believe. <laughs> so a little slow. A little wow. slow. And, and to the layperson, and I'm a layperson, but to the layperson, you... Um, you often don't realize how young, really, medicine and science um, are. I mean, medicine is hasn't been with us for a very long time. At least not medicine you'd want to have used on you. Right. And if I went back to 1800 and something went wrong with me, the last place I'd go is the doctor. <laughs> he did a lot of stuff that was just going to mess you up. Yeah. So um, you, uh, as a teacher, who you see a lot of people right out of high school, a lot of rural people, too. Yeah. Um, what are some things that you've seen that people, um, that weird things that people believe that you had to, to weed out of them? Wow. Oh, some of the strangest. I uh, had a student ask me, why, when a woman who's pregnant is underwater, does not the baby drown? Seems <laughs> <laughs> to think it's in their breathing air. Had a student who thought that the rooster added its sperm to the chicken's egg after the egg was laid didn't think that chickens copulated, that the more like fish. Um, had a student thought that a mole had a shell and scales. In other words, she had been calling turtles moles her whole life. <laughs> Some of them were just bizarre. But then on to the more common ones, which are created by, you know, internet myth and things like that. Uh, the idea that uh, someone had sex with a monkey in order to create the AIDS virus, that was never been around monkeys much if you think somebody's having sex with monkeys. Um, there's a much easier explanation which somebody, you know, cutting one up for eating and that's very probably how the virus got into humans. Uh, but just all kinds of things and they're, they're so prone, the untrained mind is so prone to making certain logical fallacies that you could jerk them around all day long using those fallacies. One I chatted a group about today was the false dichotomy. I offered my choice between two ideas uh, that are attempting to explain why allergies are more prominent today. One, that people in the past often had uh, dirty environments where they were challenged by a lot of bacteria as they grew up, much more than we are today in our relatively sterile environments, so that their modern unchallenged immune system is overactive and reacts to harmless stuff like you know, pollen and animal dander. The other idea is that Parasites were really abundant in the past. The same antibody that is used to attack parasites like hookworms or mites in your skin or fleas is also used to make allergies. 
So maybe those antibodies were sort of busy with the parasites. And, and you can check this in people today, pre-industrial people like in the Amazon or the islands of New Guinea, and you find that they don't have nearly the rate of allergies we do. And so the students instantly started arguing over which one was right. And I said, y'all hold it. Maybe both are right. And maybe it's some little part of each one. And the human mind wants to jump to, if you offer it two things, one mm -hmm. or the other. And it could be a third thing. It could be or a third. Or it could be neither of those things. Yes. Or a combination of both. <laughs> yeah, and, and for some reason I don't see that. The other one is something that you kind of alluded to with the goose barnacle. Cause and correlation. The fact that large numbers of barnacles of that type were found in areas where large numbers of geese of that type were found, well, they do correlate, yes. So, um, what is it? Um, something hawk, ergo propter hawk? Mm -hmm. Post hawk? Yep. Yes, yes. So, if, if, if well, they're together, then maybe one caused the other. After this, because of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, after this, because of this. I saw a great commercial that made me think of it recently where they're showing kids who have art class are so and so many times more likely to graduate high school and this many times less likely to mm -hmm. commit a felony or whatever. So art class is causing their low rate of crime and higher rate of graduation. This is one of my favorites. The um, When we went from, um, when we started distributing, not we, but whenever um, militaries started to get metal helmets that were good metal helmets, yeah. uh, the number of uh, head wounds in uh, field hospitals shot up and so that led some commanders to say well maybe we shouldn't have these helmets but what they didn't understand before the helmet if you got shot in the head you died <laughs> god that's morbid <laughs> so now that we have helmets we have instead of dead soldiers we have soldiers with head wounds right. so of course the head wounds shot up mm -hmm. because uh, previously those people wouldn't even be in your hospital wow <laughs> 20th century there too. That's great. Yeah, supposedly we were going to have more disciplined minds as time goes on, but if anything, I find them less so. No, I mean, the just the, the vaccine uh, debacle over the last oh, 20 years, yes. 15, 10, 20 years, is a great example of... Um, Since autism is often diagnosed at the same time that the vaccinations are given, must have caused it. It had to have. And I tell them, you know, maybe toilet training is causing that autism. <laughs> yeah, you noticed it right after you body trained it. Yeah. It had to have been that. Uh, that, that you're right. It, it, maybe they're being exposed to more bad logic modeled by people on the Internet and television. Well, I think you, you know, one of the weird things you get out of the Internet is now you're exposed to an ocean of data that's just flowing in, into your daily life, and it requires more of you. More discernment. You have, yeah, because um, it just, just you have to be open... Um, you have to be nimble enough to understand that um, not everything you read is true, which is, you know, we've heard that since we were kids, but it seems so strange. Why would this person have this uh, website and spend years and years talking about all these pictures of him doing these things and they be real? Which means that in the end of the day of the internet, while a lot of people seem to think we don't need to teach a knowledge base, because hell, you can just look that up on Google. <laughs> it's true, but. What you get back in returns from Google, like you said, is this, this avalanche of information. And you better have some sort of knowledge base with which to discern the, the real stuff from the stuff that's, and some of it's very nicely crafted to try to mislead you. So if we don't teach them some knowledge with which to sort out the real from the bad, uh, we'll be worse off than we were before. And um, like with the spontaneous generation, right? Um, you, there, there's an example of all the things that seem to be explained by spontaneous generation are um, starting with the conclusion and working backwards. Yet, uh, and you can laugh at people from back in the day who think that uh, you know there that flies can contain meat, but uh, people all the time proceed from a conclusion, and then they, then they use Google. So they say, like, I don't believe in climate change. And they and then cherry pick amongst yeah, the hits. Because if you want yeah. to believe that people didn't land on the moon, oh, well, you can find plenty of evidence for that on the internet. Why didn't uh, that flag shake? Why couldn't you send the stars? So the, <laughs> that's why I wanted to talk to you because you, um, you're a man of science. So you're a person who understands that that's a way of seeing the world. It's a, it's a 
it's a method of understanding the natural world. And without it, you're going to do these other things yes. because they're your default settings. Well, right. That says something in natural human nature to to induce and deduce uh, often incorrectly. And, and inductive reasoning, even if done right, can be really iffy. Uh, people do it without any kind of parsimony. They don't sort highly likely explanations from less likely ones. And that helps them with cherry picking too. Uh, the many different conclusions one can come with through inductive reasoning, um, you're supposed to sort amongst them by which one is most likely, least complex. But for them, if they already want a certain conclusion, then they use induction to get to that conclusion. And they don't seem to understand that having to invent three or four reasons to make their conclusion so makes it very unlikely and thus probably wrong. <laughs> that was good. That was very eloquent, sir. <laughs> Um, what is um, so? What do you when you're if somebody was to say, hey, what is science? What is your go-to definition? My go-to definition is a way of knowing things that's characterized by objectivity and absence of bias towards one answer or another, uh, restriction to empiricism, which makes it unable to answer some of our dearest questions. When I found out I was going to die at age five, I wanted to know where I was going afterwards. Science gives me very little help with that. Uh, perhaps nothing at all afterwards. Uh, that would seem to be what's indicated. Um, but science can't explore those kinds of questions because they're not subject to empirical analysis. Uh, that's not to say that things outside of the empirical realm might not exist, but science can't treat them. Uh, you can't work on those. Uh, it's also characterized by certain, uh, certain rules of logic. You have to use appropriate deductive reasoning, or if you use inductive reasoning, you've also got to employ good old Occam's razor or parsimony. And maybe most important of all, the hypotheses that you investigate have to be disprovable. And the conclusions that you draw based on the data you get have to be tentative. And this is one of the most annoying things with my students. I'll say something that they don't really like or conflicts with something that they've heard in church, and they'll say, has that been proved? <laughs> I hate that question. And I, that is a teachable moment, though, because I talk to them about, well, what has been proved, and what would you consider proof? And I'll say, we actually try not to use that word in science. We try to say that the data at this point supports this conclusion, but you don't ever say it's been proved to say so is to lack tentativeness to your conclusion and then ego gets involved so if your ego is involved it was a long argument in the 19th century that illustrates it beautifully over perhaps the most trivial point you can imagine when a pollen grain sprouts its pollen tube it's a long tube sometimes several inches long that grows into the ovary of the flower the female part and the little sperm are conveyed down that tube to get to the egg that's inside the ovary. The egg lies inside this double-walled sac called an embryo sac, and the egg is just one of a number of, of cells that are inside there. Um, there's an opening in the embryo sac called a micropile. You can still see it on a blueberry. You know, the little blueberries have a little crown on it. Mm -hmm. There's a little dot there. That is the micropile of the former embryo tube from which that whole fruit has grown. Um, young man described his observations of the microscope that the pollen tube joined the micropile but did not proceed inside, that only the sperm from the pollen got inside the embryo sac. A very august, famous, learned botanist, Matthias Schleiden, his name's still in textbooks, one of the founders of the cell theory, the Schleiden and Spahn cell theory. Spahn? Yes. Schleiden had said that the embryo tube is pierced by the pollen tube, or the embryo sac is pierced by the pollen tube, actually penetrated by it. Maybe it was some sort of metaphor for human intercourse, I don't know. But uh, since he had described it that way, when this young man's description was published, he was irate. He used the full power of his authority and everybody who was a student of his. And since he was the great man, like I was talking about earlier, botany at that time, this guy's career was a shambles. He didn't get the sort of professorship he probably should have, and sort of eked out a living in academia, 
kind of under a cloud. How steep. And it was all because Schleiden had ego involved. He had said that he had shown this, he had proved this, and to contradict him was to say that he was wrong about something. How dare this young man say this? And that sort of shit really slows down the progress of science <laughs> big time. So egos don't need to get involved. But since people are still human, uh, they do. Yeah. Let me ask you one last question. Um, what is, um, not all of it, we can't all become scientists. We can't all become deeply educated in the history of science or the or how a blueberry works, right? <laughs> uh, as, even though we should, even though it would be great. So what could a your typical average layperson, what could they borrow from the methods and the scientific toolkit to live a better life? I'd say the single most important way that you could think that would make a difference would be skepticism. Don't buy into an idea unless you have a good reason to do so. And someone telling you so or reading in a book or on a web page is not a good enough reason. You've got to have something behind it. And you've got to subject that new idea that's come to your attention to comparison with other ideas that you already have. And if it seems inconsistent, if something seems wrong, you don't ignore that, it should make you look harder at that idea. So the, the most important thing is probably skepticism. It's not to deny the existence of things that are outside of a consist, uh, consistency with your worldview, but perhaps not to put any faith in the Bible. Uh, people have entirely too much faith in the popularity of ideas, in authority figures, uh, politicians being one of the greatest examples. Some of them will say things that are just uh, patently false. And it gets me when they try to step into the arena of science, how fast they get in trouble thinking of a certain Republican from Missouri who during the last election cycle said, according to what he had talked about with doctors, women who are experiencing legitimate rape can't get pregnant. The female body has a way of shutting that down. He stepped for just three or four sentences into science, and he stepped right in the middle of something that's demonstrably untrue. Politicians are so often dealing with things that well, the economy sucked under uh, Carter, so maybe he caused that inflation that we were having. And it got better under Reagan, so he helped us out. And when there could be a thousand other reasons that things changed, very little to do with the president. They're used to making assertions that are not demonstrably untrue. But as soon as they step into science, it'll bite them on the ass. Mm -hmm. uh, you can easily show that women who were brutally raped and terribly injured during the process can still get pregnant. I was very glad to see what happened to him. Um, it was a disgusting remark and a great day for science, I thought. Wow. All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I always appreciate getting a chance to talk to you. Thank you. And now it is time once again for cookies. On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, after the interview, I read a bit of self-delusion news and taste a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or reader, and that listener or reader wins a signed copy of my new book, You Are Now Less Dumb, available for purchase everywhere that you can buy books, and I post the recipe on the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page. This week's winner is Cody Johnson, who sent in a recipe for fudgy oatmeal cookies, and he has a description that he included with his email, these cookies are vegan, but don't let that fool you. They are delicious, chunky, and chewy. I always use soy milk for the non-dairy milk. And he goes on to say that it's got cocoa and peanut butter and oatmeal and a hint of almond extract. Um, looking down the list here, it also has flaxseed and canola and, oh man, vanilla. So, okay. Uh, the recipe for this you will find on the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page. And if you want to send in your own recipes for cookies... Send them to David at youarenotsosmart.com. And, uh, okay, I'm going to try this out. Moving away from the microphone, of course, because no one wants to hear chewing. And this thing, what does it look like, first of all? It looks like, um, it does not look like an oatmeal cookie. It, uh, it looks like uh, like it has marshmallows in it or something. It, it's, it's 
it's dark chocolate colored all over, but uh, it's got that bubbly texture on the top, like like something that has mush, uh, marshmallows in it. Okay, so I'm uh, moving away now. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I agree. Mm -hmm. So I agree with this cookie on every level, um, and um, I have to say that uh, because of this agreement, the deliciousness is seeping through my uh, very efforts. Hmm. Wow. So. Hmm. You know, Cody. I really did not expect it to be insanely delicious because it's vegan, right? But uh, it is insanely delicious. I mean, it's it's airy, very fluffy, like um, like a brownie, but even fluffier. But it is also chewy while being fluffy. It's like chewy, fluffy, chewy, fluffy, chewy, fluffy crunch. Peanut butter crunch? Mm. So yeah, it's chocolate and it's... Uh, Peanut butter and airy and fluffy and crunch. Oh my, you, you're going to have to make these. These are good. I am riding down a waterfall into a pool of bliss. Mm. That's a good cookie. So what is the self-delusion news for this episode? Well, you may have seen this article going around the web. If you follow me on Twitter, David McCraney, at David McCraney, or you can follow You Are Not So Smart, at Not Smart Blog. Uh, but if you follow me, I tweeted out that the vitamin myth is, um, it was an article in the Atlantic called the vitamin myth, why we think we need supplements. And it's an, uh, one of those fascinating articles that you've heard about this kind of stuff here and there, but someone finally, uh, took all of the information and put it in one article and it discusses how that, and you, I've heard this from doctors and scientists for years now that vitamins aren't necessary it's like supplements are not necessary for your health if you just eat a normal diet with foods that are not crap you will get all the vitamins that you need your body is very efficient not only at um, obtaining and deriving vitamins from your food but also it's very efficient at removing toxins so there's pretty much anything that has to do with purifying the body through uh, um, removing toxins in some way is bunk and almost everything that has to do with adding vitamins to your body in the form of a pill is bunk. There's a um, there's a great infographic on the web that uh, you can just Google it up that's, uh, that says what are the actual supplements that work. Just go to information is beautiful or Google it. Information is beautiful snake oil and you'll find that uh, that really cool chart and the the chart shows that certain things like folic acid, you know, um, the there's a, there's a line, and it's called the worth it line. And what's above it is seems to be supported by evidence, and what's below it is not. And everything is below the line except for folic acid, uh, fish oil, and omega three, garlic, and um, melatonin. And then below it is everything else, including fish oil and omega three for certain reasons. Uh, Green tea is halfway above, halfway below, and then everything else is below it. Antioxidants, coconut oil, uh, lysine, uh, DHEA, everything. So, um, yeah, there's not a lot of evidence out there that supports uh, taking vitamins for your health. So this article, and I don't want to just sit here and read the whole thing out loud to you or go through all of its highlights. I just want you to go read this article. It is The Vitamin Myth, Why We Think We Need Supplements. You can see a link to it at youarenotsosmart.com under the post for this podcast. And it's written by Paul Offit. And he goes through the history of how we came to believe in things like vitamin C and how that um, despite the fact that science has sort of weighed in on the matter of vitamins over the last 20 years and especially the last 10 years, it still persists as one of those um, culturally handed down inherited uh, beliefs that is becoming a superseded scientific theory like we talked about before in the podcast. And worse than that, worse than that is he goes through a list of studies like this. I'm just going to read from the article a little bit here. In 1994, 29,000 men studied, all smokers, all more than 50 years old. They all were at high risk for cancer and heart disease. They were given vitamin E, beta carotene, both or neither. And he writes, the results were clear. Those who were taking vitamins and supplements were 
more likely to die from lung cancer or heart disease. In 1996, he writes that a study of 18,000 people who have been exposed to asbestos, they were given vitamin A, beta carotene, both or neither, and the people who received vitamins and supplements were more likely to die from cancer. In 2004, uh, 170,000 people who took vitamins A, C, E, beta carotene, and antioxidants uh, were seen to increase their overall mortality. They were 6% more likely to die of certain diseases. In 2005, researchers at John Hopkins, they uh, studied 136,000 people. Again, I'm reading from this article. And they found that people who took vitamin E to uh, prevent cancer were more likely to develop heart failure than those who didn't. In 2007, he writes that 11,000 men who did or did not take multivitamins were studied, and those who took multivitamins were more likely to die from prostate cancer. And it keeps going, and there are like several more of these. 2008, uh, cancer and heart disease. 2011, uh, people who took magnesium and iron, they were more likely to die at higher rates than others. So it's a really interesting article that not only talks about something that's been discussed in certain skeptical communities that uh, vitamins are not good for you, um, that vitamins may be bad for you. So check that out. You can find it at the Atlantic Magazine online. That's it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Go to youarenotsosmart.com to find links to everything that we talked about in this episode. And you can go there and pre-order my new book, You Are Now Less Dumb, or you can get a t-shirt I have confirmation bias t-shirts. I have t-shirts that are about thinking, about thinking, about thinking, about thinking. I, uh, I really want you to go there and check out the trailer for You Are Now Less Dumb. We put a lot of work into it, and I think you will think it's really cool, and it's related to everything we talked about today. And if you want video made like the video that is in that trailer, go to plus3video.com. They make videos like that for all manners of businesses and needs, and I think they are amazing. Welcome to the new Ollie Hyper Cyber Space Hybrid. Hey, slow down there, shortcake. What? What are you talking about? What's that I'm, thing on your head? I have laser eyes now. In uh -huh. the future, you just have to upgrade yourself. Humans and biomechanics are one in yeah, peace. Yes, so what does this all do for you? What can you do with these? I can burn holes through <laughs> I've got laser eyes, man. What else can you do? I can read minds and now yeah, I'm more curious. I'm so curious about knowledge and obtaining information. Yeah, you told me about the reading minds. You're not convincing me. I've got laser eyes, and I know what you're thinking. It comes as no surprise. Christmas lights are blinking. Uh, 